The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. And Peter Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in 3, 2, 1. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and last but not least, zot, 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 everyday anteaters. I am your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, aka Timothy Toastmaster, excited and committed to bringing you informative, inquisitive, and just plain fun positive talk radio. So here we go. Hello, Anteater Nation. This is UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is UCI IMCA Director Kim Kanatani. Now, you may not be familiar with the initialism IMCA yet, but I assure you, it is becoming another wonderful cornerstone of this amazing place called UCI. IMCA stands for Institute and Museum of California Art, to which Director Kanatani is the leader. And we're going to find out all about her and what's happening for the Institute Museum and a breaking news alert, IMCA's special announcement just this week. Welcome to UCI Conversations, Director Kanatani. How are you today? I'm very good. Thank you, Kevin, for uh, your interest and to our audience to want to learn more about Langston IMCA. Super. Let's just start from the beginning. Where did you grow up and what did you like to do when you were a kid? So I'm a Southern California native. I'm a third generation Japanese American, and I actually grew up about 60 miles from here in a place called Redlands, California. In the Inland Empire is what it's it's known as. Because I was so close and having grown up there, you know, ironically, Laguna and Newport Beach, they were my family's getaway and our escape from the Inland Empire. So really, I consider Orange County in this area kind of in my backyard. I'm also a product of the California University system, both Cal State LA and at UCLA. So I'm very proud of that. And it helps me even more so to be in alignment with, again, returning to a, a UC campus. Wonderful. Did you always love art? You know, pretty much so. You know, when I think of my interactions with art, especially when I was younger, it really focused on the making of my own art and being able to kind of experience the artistic practice firsthand. It had a real influence early on 
in terms of my curiosity to uh, want to learn more. What kind of art did you do? Earlier on, it was really focusing on, um, I would say, textiles and, and ceramic. Textiles, specifically weaving, macrame, um, but ceramics were also something that I was very enamored with before I got into college. When you say ceramics, was that with a, a turning wheel or was it with sculpture or, or what was it? It was actually all facets. Um, uh-huh. it, it was, um, y- yes, it was throwing clay and and uh, creating that way, but also in terms of uh, sculptural modes, especially when I got into the art education program at Cal State LA and took some practical studio art-based uh, courses. Did you always know that you'd go to college? It was pretty much a given. And then as I kind of progressed more and more into the you know, closer to my career and, and being part of a workforce, I realized how essential it was in order to remain competitive and to be able to hopefully secure a job that I really wanted and felt that I deserved because of my uh, educational background, among others. How did you pick UCLA to get your undergrad? One of the things that intrigued me about UCLA was, number one, that it was close to home, but far enough away from home, if you know what I mean. Also, it suited my major well, which was I actually was a Japanese major when I was um, an undergrad. And part of the reason for that was, number one, I think back in college, I was in that moment of time where I really wanted to seek out more about my identity my identity as a a Japanese American. And I think the other piece of that is, is that I was always enamored with learning languages and how that could enable, you know, more meaningful cross-cultural understanding and communication. And, you know, as a result of that, part of my undergraduate years were studying abroad. But one of the seeds that preempted that was, you know, early on for several summers, I would go down to Mexico to Guadalajara and um, Cuernavaca to actually learn Spanish for the reasons that I just mentioned, this cross-cultural communication and understanding another person through language was really fascinating to me, not to mention, you know, the adventures of traveling to different parts of the country and the globe. And I think This was in part kind of a prescient lead up to the work I would do at the Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum, which, as you know, is um, an international uh, global constellation of museums in different different parts of the world. Right. What was your undergrad degree in? It was as a Japanese major. Oh, okay. And then did you go to grad school right away? Uh, My graduate degree, pretty much so. My graduate studies revolved um, around education and teaching. And that is where as part of that credential program, I fell into art education. That was one of the modules, of course, that was required. And I had an amazing professor. I don't know about you, but I remember, quote unquote, art in elementary school being, you know, where you have your hand print and then you outline it, and then that becomes a turkey for Thanksgiving. Um, What she she did was really turn my head around about how original works of art can really inspire a, a curriculum, whether it be for 
teaching in a classroom, or in my case, I actually transitioned into wanting to teach and be involved in museum education within the art museum context versus the classroom context. I found it much more satisfying to be able to focus on, contemplate, and have amazing discussions with folks in a gallery setting around a work of art. I thought that that was just magical. Wonderful. It sounds like you're in the right place. Do you have a favorite museum in the world? Well, the the, the one I'm currently working <laughs> yeah. in is Langston. I guess, after I said that, I kind of said, on. well, that's kind of a setup. Is it? But, <laughs> well, I'm a set, in, in terms of all the other museums in the world, besides here at UCI, you know, do you have a, a favorite? No, thank you for that question, Kevin. Yes, I think I would immediately gravitate towards the previous two institutions that I worked with. Most recently, I was at the Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum and Foundation. And then previously, I was at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles. And then even actually before that, there was a lesser known uh, institution that still exists today in Barnsdale Park in Los Angeles called the Los Angeles Municipal Art Gallery. All of those institutions uh, provided pivotal experiences to inform my career and the directions my profession would take me in. It really does seem like you've built your career as a stair step because it's not easy to get arts positions. Am I right? It seems like it would be very competitive and, and hard. Is that true? Yes, it is. It's, it's quite competitive. And that goes back to your question about degrees and education. So your first position was at this small art museum. What type of arts education were you doing there? I spent most of my career as an art museum, what was called museum education professional, but within an art museum context. So that's how I transferred my academic training in art education, but again, applying it to the art museum setting. Can you tell us a little bit about the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles? Yeah, let me put a thread through those three institutions that I talked about, the Los Angeles Municipal Art Gallery, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles, and um, the Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum. One of the things why I cite those institutions is that I was really fortunate to have worked under visionary directors in all three of those institutions. Uh, Josine Yonko Starles at the Los Angeles Municipal Art Gallery, who really was an avid proponent of the role that education needs to play within an art museum context. And then when uh, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles opened in the 80s, uh, Richard Koshalik was the then visionary director who I still consider as a mentor today. And then finally at the Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum, Thomas Krenz, who was really the innovator of something that is pretty status quo now, and that is the concept of museums having uh, global outposts or alliances with other institutions, if not their own, in different parts of the globe. So you were at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles from 1995 to 2000. Do you remember any particular project that you worked on that was particularly meaningful to you? Absolutely. And it goes back to the then director there that I mentioned, Richard Koshalik. What was so impactful to me was that he instilled 
the importance of collaborating with artists in order to develop new forms of public engagement. And he didn't just instill it in me. What was interesting about Richard is that he expected the entire institution from education, of course, curatorial, to even marketing, to figure out a way to really be more artist-centric and artist-driven because by following the lead of the artist, that's where you're gonna get at innovation within an institution. Thus, I think one of really what I consider the keystones of my professional practice has been developing collaborative projects with artists to innovate new ways of audience engagement and in so doing explore critical issues of our time. It's interesting, artists and their work have very interesting ways to elevate civic discourse and really generate dialogue about topical issues. One of the things, this was not a project that, or a commission that I did at MOCA, but is one that we are currently looking forward to as part of Langston IMCA. And just to give you an example of what it is I'm talking about, there is an artist and environmental activist, Linda Gass, who we invited to create a commissioned work. This was a very open-ended process. And one of the things going back to MOCA was that It wasn't so much in terms of collaborating with artists to say, oh, artist X, can you do this? Or can you provide this program? Or can you create? It was more James Rosenquist or Kathy Opie. What ideas do you have for providing an interesting kind of learning opportunity for an audience of your choice? And by opening it up that way, you really get at that kind of artist centrism that I'm talking about. And an idea that myself as an art educator or a museum professional might not have thought about. So fast forward on this upcoming commission that we have with Linda Gass. Linda is an artist and she's also an environmental activist. And when we asked her about the nature of her commission, she said, you know, my work really is inspired by research. So knowing that she was also interested in water rights, Uh, Among other things, we created, and I should say we, it's actually the the curator of this exhibition, Bridget Cooks, who is uh, one of Langston IMCA's interim associate directors and is also, of course, uh, an associate professor in the School of Humanities, specifically in uh, the Department of Art History. We put together a list of various professors on campus who were doing really interesting research. And we we shared it with Linda and lo and behold, she fell upon some water rights work and research that professor in the anthropology department here at UCI, uh, Valerie Olson, has been conducting on the Santa Ana watershed. So they bonded, found out more about each other's work. And as a result of that, Linda will be creating what work kind of forming as a multi-layered, how can I say it, a multi-layered textile piece that will capture very aesthetically and conceptually the metamorphosis of the Santa Ana watershed, which is an invaluable water resource to Orange County residents and how it's been transformed through intense water-oriented channels. So she will be capturing that in her textiles. And then side by side, when we do present that work, there will be a 1928 painting by a California Impressionist artist known as William Wendt um, that 
shows the Santa Ana watershed when it actually had water. So that's kind of a, a, a long and intertwined story, but it's how what I just said in terms of artists can get at innovation, but they can also get at really important topical civic issues and put it out there for contemplation, dialogue, as well as debate. And that's where I think a museum as a public platform can really serve as a gathering point for which multiple perspectives can be discussed in a safe environment. Excuse me for a moment, Director, while I update our audience. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bostenmeyer, and my guest is the Institute and Museum of California Art Director, Kim Katani, and we're learning about her and the exciting things that are blossoming at IMCA, and we've gotten to the point where she takes a position at the Guggenheim Museum in New York City, I believe. Is that true, Director? Yes, I was based in New York City. That would be the Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum. I was also part of the Solomon R. Guggenheim Foundation, which comprises an international constellation of museums in different parts of the globe. But I was based in New York and first and foremost charged with administrative oversight of the education programs at the Guggenheim in New York, in addition to needing to build bridges and educational linkages with my colleagues in the other museums. The, the, for those of you who don't know, the, the Guggenheim constellation comprises a Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao, Spain, uh, the Peggy Guggenheim Collection in Venice, and then also a, a future museum that I was able to work on prior to coming here that is still under development, and that is um, the Guggenheim Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates. Why is the Guggenheim Museum so famous? Well, I think for one, and what I just mentioned in terms of the constellation, this was the brainchild of Thomas Krenz. And I thought it was quite brilliant and has been emulated since the 90s when this evolved by other museums. And part of it is it was a concept of creating this constellation where institutions, rather than compete, can share their collections. They can share their educational programs and foster cross-cultural exchange with art and artists at the center on an international scale. And I think, you know, because the Guggenheim's global representation, because of that, it was such a magnet for numerous other cross-cultural pedagogical and museological exchange programs that we did with other venues um, worldwide. But getting back to the kernel of your first question, Kevin, in terms of why the Guggenheim, one of the reasons why at least the Guggenheim Museum in New York is so famous is because of its iconic Frank Lloyd Wright building. That is something that is very much on the forefront of, of my thinking and what I've been charged to do uh, with Langston IMCA, and that is to also design a, an architecturally significant building. And I say this because getting back to the Guggenheim, that iconic Frank Lloyd Wright building, of the million plus visitors we had at the Guggenheim, about 40 to 50% of those folks from all over the world came to see the building and its interior. So I think that that speaks volumes. And one of the things that mostly all of the Guggenheims underscore, including the Frank Lloyd Wright building, is that 
those buildings are considered part of the museum's collections. From working there so long, are there any building secrets that you can speak about? The importance of form following function. I hate to say so cliche, but that is absolutely so critical and something that we have taken very seriously and to heart for Langson IMCA, making sure that the form, your mission, your vision, your collections, your programs, the audiences you want to serve are served by the building and not the other way around where you have to craft programs, craft offerings because you've inherited a certain building architecture. I think for us at Langston IMCA, one of the silver linings of this god-awful pandemic was the opportunity to hunker down with my amazing staff, as well as faculty colleagues in the field to participate in a what's really been a year and a half or year and a half plus concept planning process, as well as a strategic planning process. Uh, for our operations, all in preparation for the time uh, when we are able to secure and bring on a design architect for our building. Folks may not know that we are a startup on all fronts, except because we have uh, and have been uh, kind of blessed with a 4,500 work collection from the outset, we can and are doing programming around that at an interim space about a mile from campus. But I don't want to go too far afield uh, with that because I know we'll talk about that later. And just a reminder, the iconic Guggenheim Museum building is a unique circular medium-sized building that grabs your attention whenever you see it across from New York City's Central Park. You actually go from floor to floor on this continuous ramp circle. Yeah, you're actually working what we call those the, the circular area internally were the ramps. And you're actually working against gravity if you start at the rotunda and then you work your way up. Um, there are certain exhibitions that we did where you take the elevator all the way up to the sixth ramp and then you work your way down. I think it depends on how the exhibition is presented and what we would um, recommend to visitors in terms of how they could um, access the exhibitions. But one thing that was really special, if, if the visitors, if your viewers, if your listeners could Im imagine this, you know, circular rotunda that is guided by six ramps or surrounded by six ramps, one thing that you can do is you can actually look across the rotunda and you can see work on the other side of the building. Whereas if you think of the traditional kind of white cube, you walk into that rectangular space and you see everything around you, but you can't see what's in the next gallery. That was one of the amazing beauties of what Frank Lloyd Wright and the founding museum director, Hilla Rebe, really envisioned. In your role at the Guggenheim Museum, did you travel a lot, a little, a lot, or, or not much? I saw the world through the lens of the Guggenheim. It was quite amazing. The, the Guggenheim gave me the opportunities to, to literally see the world. I think I talked earlier about what we call our museum constellation alone of the Guggenheim Foundation, that in and of itself being uh, one site in Spain, one in Venice, the future site in the United Arab Emirates, and then of course, being at the crossroads in New York. Um, that alone was an amazing experience. We even had earlier on, when I first got there, there was a Guggenheim in Las Vegas as well. So there were others that kind of came and went, yeah. but because 
the Guggenheim has such a strong international brand, it also opened up other opportunities for folks, for other institutions, for other funding opportunities of uh, folks that wanted to be associated with the international or had overlapping concerns with us about global and art in different parts of the globe. Did you ever get involved with purchasing art on the museum level? No, the closest, you know, my my role at the Guggenheim specifically was as a deputy director, but a deputy director to oversee the educational mm. programs. But having said that, the closest I came to quote unquote acquire work is the satisfaction of having been able to commission different kinds of artist projects. Mm. Did they enter the collection? Some may, some may have not, but that was not the intention, but the satisfaction was tremendous to be able to work with amazing artists in, a, in what I like to say is in very open-ended fashion, not a dictatorial or a, an authoritative fashion, but to work with artists who in the education realm, I knew were interested in audience and education and to be able to instead dictate what I wanted them to do, to be able to ask them to brainstorm with these amazing minds, um, new forms and new ways of public engagement that could be realized with the public through their art. Gotcha. As I was reflecting on our discussion about the New York City Guggenheim Museum that was, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright designed, does that building actually have a name or is it just the New York City Guggenheim building? Uh, when you see the Guggenheim from the outside, it will prominently say the Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum. That's what it's referenced as. Gotcha. Um, there are other, you know, historical quotes and statements that have been made about it. The one that's probably most infamous either came from Hilary Bay, the, the founding director, and or Frank Lloyd Wright. I think it was Hilary Bay who really envisioned the Guggenheim in New York as a temple of spirit. Hmm. And when you walk in there, if you've been there, I think you'll know what I mean. And hopefully uh, your listeners who haven't will um, be able to pay a visit to just step in the rotunda and then look up and see that Oculus. Uh, it really is, um, the, the lighting is amazing and has been such an attraction to artists worldwide, especially in that rotunda about ways in which to play with the light, play with that Oculus and be able to create and dream up commissioned works of art. Excellent. You were at the Guggenheim Museum from 2001 to 2019, a long time. How does UCI come into the picture and what attracted you? Um, well, I was sought by Phillips Oppenheim, which was charged with doing the, the international search for this particular position. And there's a couple of reasons why this job was so serendipitous, not only for me personally and professionally, but also for my husband and I, UCI. So um, not only was I, as I mentioned earlier on, a product of the California university system, but my husband actually has three degrees from UCI, two in the Department of Art and one in the School of Education. We are both, without getting into too much details, we consider both of us, you know, Southern California natives. So in that sense, it was kind of an interesting and, and serendipitous kind of convergence 
the weather out here, of course, is amazing. And I was sought in the middle of winter, <laughs> January and February, which for me are the worst months in New York, where it's freezing cold and had long missed just basic things like open space, the outdoors and weather. So that's kind of a, a, a bit of a side note. But I think the, the other draw for this is number one, being on the campus of a tier one research university who is brokering a brand new institute and museum to have that opportunity to be able to envision a Langston IMCA from the ground up does not come very often. In addition to that, I think I mentioned that the bulk of my career has been as an art museum education professional. And over the years, I began to feel a real growing sense of urgency and responsibility to seek a museum directorship. And in so doing, to try to address a number of inequities that art museums and their institutional structures have been and continue to grapple with. I'll elaborate on that by saying that my background training as an art museum education professional has always focused on ways that art museums can and should serve as platforms for democratizing access and understanding to art and culture. I wanted to be able to ensure that the role of education, the role of audience engagement and community care are at the forefront along with our collections. Yes, our acquisitions and our publication agendas. Um, particularly as an art museum education professional, I felt that often education and audience were lesser in the hierarchical scheme of the priorities of an institution. And I felt, as I said, you know, a real sense of uh, responsibility to make sure that I could then oversee a museum where all of those things were much more on an equitable playing field. Excuse me one more time, Director. Ladies and gentlemen, if you joined us late, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, the UCI Conversation Show. And my guest today is UCI Institute and Museum of California Art Director, Kim Kanatani. And right now we're just getting into the IMCA creation that happened in 2017. I guess UCI had always had part of their master plan to have an art museum collection. So then the wheels start turning in in 2017. And then you actually came here in 2019. Is that true? That's true. Yeah, And it's a very interesting history for UCI and Langston IMCA that you're inferring, Kevin. Um, Let me go back, if I will, to the 1960s, because this is a very important part of the story. William Pereira, who was the architect of the master plan for UCI, had always envisioned an art museum on campus, and that was never realized until now, and thanks to the vision of Chancellor Gilman. One of the catalysts for uh, the then the creation and now the realization of an institute and a museum was thanks to the amazing gifts that we received almost back to back uh, gifts uh, of art collections. First of all, from the estate of Gerald Buck, who donated 3,000 works of modern 
and contemporary art, um, largely created by artists who in some form or a way or another had a relationship with California. And then on the coattails of that, James Irvine Swindon donated the collection of his mother's, Joan Irvine Smith, of California Impressionism and plein air art. So that comprises 1300 works from the turn of the century, from the late 19th century up to the early 20th century. So with those generous gifts, Chancellor Gilman had no hesitation to accept them and to understand that they need proper housing and care, as well as the presentation of these works and to be able to have the generosity to share it with the public. How would you categorize these two collections? Are they complementary? Well, we call them, right now I'm referring to those two collections as bookends. You have on one hand, California Impressionists, the turn of the century, And then you have largely post-World War II modern and contemporary art in terms of the Buck collection. I think it's important for your listeners to know that these are personal collections that were really created by these visionary founders and collectors in terms of what it is they were gravitating towards and wanted to give back to the public. When we do hire a chief curator, which is hopefully imminent within this next year, one of the first tasks that that position will have is to really take a look at these 4,500 works and start thinking about how, yes, they are forming the foundation from which we will be generating new scholarship, um, amazing offerings about California art, but where are some of the gaps that we also need to fill in order to tell a more comprehensive story of California art and its artists. Is there anything right now that sticks out for you that you're interested in expanding with? Um, You know, all of us are really can hardly wait, I should say, in the next four to five years for our actual building to be realized. That, I think, is one of the, the key pieces here. Well, please, let's just cut to the chase. This is perfect timing. Please tell us the exciting news about the selected permanent location for Langson IMCA. The future site of Langson IMCA, which will form a new gateway for UCI, basically on what's called North Campus, which is right at the intersection of Campus and Jamboree Road. And our site right now will abut right up against the San Joaquin Marshland Preserve. So we will have um, the advantages of not only amazing art, these collections, but also proximity to nature and amazing vistas. And this is something that is very critical and um, pertinent to our collections, particularly the California Impressionist Collection, which is all about California art, nature, and of course, the the legacy of Joan Irvine Smith and her active environmental activism and preservation. So for all of those reasons, among many others, we are thrilled to be able to um, secure that site on North Campus that is so in line with our mission and vision uh, of our collection and the types of programming that we um, endeavor to do, not only just for the campus 
the staff, student, faculty, but for artists, for scholars, and of course, Irvine and the greater region, not to mention um, trying to build a compelling destination that will attract folks from different parts of the globe to come and visit and be a part of the cultural ecosystem that we hope to contribute to for Orange County. That's fantastic. Can you be a little bit more specific about where IMCA will go in the North Campus? Will it be in front of the parking structure that's currently being built? The specific location will be along Campus Drive east of Jamboree Road, that intersection. And again, this is a part of what is referred to as North Campus. But our neighbor adjacency will be, it's not a parking structure that you're seeing right now. It's actually the building, I believe, of the hospital that is also going to be located to the west of us. So we will be neighbors on this major plot of North Campus. Both of us will abut up to that San Joaquin Marsh preservation. It sounds like a fantastic location. It is for so many different reasons, which is atypical for a a cultural institution to have a hospital as its adjacencies. It's just already catalyzing all kinds of, you know, amazing ideas about art and wellness and how important that is. I know one of the things that will connect us in the future is this UCI project that they're referring to as Naturescape. It's a very expansive project that kind of emanates from Aldrich Park and the first phase will be focusing on Aldrich Park, but this will be a walkway as it pertains to IMCA and the hospital. This will be a walkway that traverses that marsh and it will actually culminate and emanate from our site at North Campus. So again, that's gonna be another art, wellness, important nature connector to not only the, the, the concept of wellness, but the concept of our collection. So again, this is kind of how we've been thinking about not only the mission, the vision, our programming, but also our collections and how its site, as well as its building, can help support those entities. Fantastic. Could you please acknowledge Shanaz and Jack Langson, who were responsible for getting this building project off the drawing board? Oh, absolutely. We are so honored and grateful to Jack and Shanaz for their generous uh, naming gift for uh, Langson IMCA. I should say that was a really critical announcement that we made back in December that I think generated a lot of interest of folks that hadn't realized that UCI was committing to a Langson IMCA. So we are indebted and grateful and honored to have them as our lead donors. What I know their interest is in is is multifaceted in terms of why IMCA. I know that they feel very strongly about a well-rounded 21st century uh, educational curriculum, fully integrating visual culture with other existing teaching disciplines at the university in order to expand opportunities for learning. That's one area they feel very strongly about. They are also interested in uh, some of the latest scientific developments to understanding and preserving art objects and archival materials for the benefit of future generations. And then art and wellness, healing gardens, 
those things are really top of mind for the Langsons as well, knowing uh, what we just discussed, our adjacencies being a, a medical facility. Is there a tradition of art museums at universities nationally and or internationally? I was recently at Stanford University and was impressed with their sculptures and museum on campus. Yeah, I think what you're referring to uh, are the, the tradition of perhaps art museums being connected to universities. Yeah, um, I should say absolutely Stanford's an excellent example of that um, with several museums on that campus. But also, you may not know there is actually an association of academic museums and galleries. And there are hundreds, if not thousands of institutions that are connected to that particular organization. And it's not just national, it's, it's, it has some international members to it as well. But what I will say about Langson IMCA as a real differentiator is that, for one, we're not just a museum and a gallery. We are also an institute and one that really strives to create a, a new model for a 21st century institute and a museum that embraces education, research, as well as our art-centered focus. You know, I consider museums, whether they be the ones I used to work at or something like Langs and IMC, as research-oriented. Curators do research in order to really add scholarly underpinnings to the exhibitions they promote. But to have a discrete institute, and by the way, I say discrete, but we do envision IMCA as an umbrella over an institute and a museum. It's not that the institute's gonna be on one side, the museum on the other side. We see it very holistically, I, I think for many good reasons. Imagine, for example, if you were a scholar in residence in the institute, you might be an artist, you might be an art critic, whatever the discipline is to yes, research and then realize perhaps your research as part of a publication, but with a museum right beside you, wouldn't it be great to be able to think about your research and publicly disseminate it as an exhibition or as a public program or as a symposium? And that's where I think this kind of what I call one-stop shopping for either a scholar or an artist or an audience where it's all there. Um, in the Institute, we will have, we will be um, more than open to housing artists' estates as well as archives, as well as uh, we're working with Laura Tanji uh, about creating a branch art library within the Institute proper. But again, I think it's just to be a researcher or to be an artist um, and to have everything there, collection storage, exhibition space, you know, research space, residency space, convening spaces. For all of those reasons, I think this is going to contribute to Langston IMCA being quite distinctive in this larger pool of academic museums and galleries. I love plein air paintings. Would you describe the majority of the IMCA plein air paintings to be from the Irvine Museum collection? Where the plein air element resides is really in the Irvine Museum collection and in the work of California Impressionists, which is the bulk of uh, that particular collection of the 1300 works that I mentioned. Plein air refers to literally art that's created out of doors. 
the reason why it's oftentimes associated with impressionism goes back to the the roots of impressionism so if you bear with me i'll, I'll kind of try to unpack that a little bit impressionism in and of itself is a type of painting that originated in france in the 1870s impressionist painters largely produced their work outside of their studios in, in a process of painting that is known as plein air or painting out of doors. Impressionist paintings in and of themselves, if you're not familiar with them, are often characterized by loose brushwork and an emphasis on these fleeting effects of light and color. It migrated its way to the US, I would say around the late 19th century into the early 20th century. And as you can imagine, Southern California was such a magnet for artists who were interested in this art form because it was so conducive here to, to working in the Impressionist style out of doors in amazing light uh, and, and climate conditions. Um, so it, it provided the ideal context for which some of this art could thrive. And what was interesting is that a lot of the California Impressionists in our collection actually went abroad. They studied at the Academy in Paris. They went to Giverny to understand the inspirations that Monet was experiencing. And then they came back and many of them created a very unique and kind of hybrid form, which is why we call it California Impressionism and not French Impressionism, or necessarily there are schools of American Impressionism as well. But for those reasons, that's why California Impressionism, I think, really gained its idiosyncrasies and, and uniquenesses. Any idea when the building will be completed? We don't have a specific date, but we imagine that it will be in and around 2027. And that, of course, is hoping that we, we don't run across another pandemic or another kind of malady that is going to really set us back. Can you compare arts organizations? How does IMCA compare? Um, I'm going to probably use the word resonance. One of the things that we as Langston IMCA endeavor to be is really the epicenter for California art. And of course, as I mentioned, a, a compelling destination that is both locally engaged as a cultural catalyst but also globally relevant as a seminal investigator and presenter of California's influence and innovation through its art. Are we the museum with the most comprehensive holdings of California art? By no stretch of the imagination. We have um, amazing institutions within the state as well as outside of the state that really showcase and have amazing collections of California art. But no one of us can claim to be the, the comprehensive museum of California art. But we feel, given our mission and our vision, that we as Langston IMCA have a responsibility to really spearhead leadership in this area. And to that end, what we are hoping to do is lead a consortium of museums and cultural institutions who have significant collections of California art. I'm thinking off the top, the Crocker Museum, the Oakland Museum uh, of California Art and Culture, um, the California Afro-American Museum, 
again, going back to my references to the Guggenheim and this notion of collection sharing, resource sharing, and building a constellation, rather than compete, let's collaborate, let's collection share, let's share our educational resources so that we're not all, number one, expending significant amounts of money, but also are able to instead share and exchange to realize um, this rich diversity uh, and story that needs to be told about California art. I, I think too, I think Kevin too, just to emphasize, of course, the a digital database and that kind of component is gonna be absolutely critical to the realization of this. But I think, you know, that will be a longer term endeavor. But in the meantime, um, we have and will continue to uh, engage in conversations uh, with uh, our colleagues about this topic and whose collections privilege this uh, area uh, of art. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is UCI Institute and Museum of California Art Director Kim Kanatani. And we've been talking all about the new building, which will be constructed in the next few years at Campus and Jamboree Boulevard. Will the IMCA collection be available to see online? Is that a goal? Absolutely. Consider again that, you know, we have 4,500 works. We are a startup. And what we've been focusing on is at least creating an internal database so that researchers, so that staff, that we have um, at least some type of uh, what we call our web kiosk of um, every work in our collection documented with uh, what we call tombstone verification label context. The next step, of course, is a larger step and that is to translate it from an internal database and then make it publicly accessible. So yes, that's absolutely part of this is to really disseminate it and get it out into the, the world and beyond just the immediate region. Director Kanatani, how is an arts organization for an institute museum organized? You know, that's a very interesting question, Kevin, and I thank you for asking that because I think a lot of the behind the scenes of what goes on in an art museum is really unknown to the public. And I'm thinking as I go through this list of the various roles our staff play that I'm thinking especially to UCI students in terms of career possibilities that they may not have been aware of or potentially were were thinking about. And this could perhaps confirm their aspirations as well. But just to name a few, of course, there's the curatorial division. Um, Those folks are very well informed about art, uh, artists, the histories and the practices behind those elements, past, present, as well as the new and the next. Then there are other folks who are engaged with education and community engagement. And these are folks that understand the philosophical underpinnings and the best practices for ways in which people can learn about art through the programs that they develop. Fundraising, Relate, it's, it's all about relationship building, not just for the development folks and the advancement folks, but on all fronts, the importance of everybody building relationships with the audience priorities is important. But in terms of fundraising, grant writers, we've had English majors who have also um, been well-informed about art, who have done wonderful areas in that realm. The registrars, that comprises the largest team right now that we have. Uh, and they are in charge of the oversight and the care and the management of our 4,500 plus work collection. 
There are also, you know, exhibition as well as graphic designers. Uh, we've had some set designers, people who are coming at it maybe from a more artistic standpoint and then fall into this magic of being able to design exhibitions to envision and to play out the curatorial vision. Lighting experts, absolutely essential. And then I think one thing that's really important for the STEM school that UCI is, is conservation and that marriage between art and science that every conservator who works in an art museum must have. And this is probably one of the least known areas, but it's fascinating to delve into the science of the art. And then there's, of course, things like financial, you know, we have CFOs that have budgetary oversight, legal counsels are really, really critical. And UCI is really fortunate uh, to have one counselor in particular, Kim Penfield, who actually has a specialty in art and law. Those folks are absolutely essential with the contracts, with the acquisitions, with our gift agreements. So there's many, many opportunities. And I wanna just conclude by saying, as an institution that is committed to teaching and learning, we employ undergrads as well as graduate students and provide them with professional development and career track training in most of the areas that I just cited. I think just within the previous academic year alone, we have actually employed 23 undergraduate and graduate students. So stay tuned students and check our job boards because we're always in need and we're gonna be growing in need as we inch closer and closer to our opening in the coming years. Director Kanatani, what is your vision for Langston IMCA? Great question, Kevin. Thank you for the opportunity to let me respond to that. First of all, the thing that I was tasked for, and it remains my vision, is to realize the new museum and institute as the epicenter of California art and a compelling destination that is both locally engaged as a cultural catalyst, as well as globally relevant as, you know, we like to think of ourselves as the, as being the seminal investigator and presenter of California's influence and innovation through its art. Um, because of our locality, you know, we are an essential partner of a leading research university and will bring together students, faculty, staff, scholars, artists, and through our programming, we want to intersect and interconnect the campus to Irvine and other publics throughout the region and well beyond. We really see Langston IMCA as a bridge between those entities. And my aspiration is, isn't it wonderful for all those populations to be able to co-mingle together through art and culture? Wow. Fantastic. Do you think that you'll include that in your ambitious design for the new building? I mean, are you looking to make a statement like the Guggenheim? Is, is that too ambitious? When they built the Guggenheim, was, was it that controversial? Or, you know, do, do, can you give us any sense of that? We want it, as I mentioned earlier, we want to be a compelling destination. And yes, to have an architecturally significant building that many might come, especially if they're architecture aficionados, 
They may come just to see the building and then discover this wonderful collection. So I think we have to open ourselves up to many different avenues, depending on where our audiences are coming from and hope that they step foot in our doors and then discover something that they weren't intending to see, but is available to them as well. And I, I should say it's not just the building, but we hope to have a significant amount of open air green space as well, that I think, you know, if you can imagine sculpture commissions, that type of thing, other types of landmarks, that it could be a unique experience. We know that Irvine has so many wonderful open air green spaces, but I think this could be qualitatively different and a different experience that we hope will also um, attract people to, to come on site, to yeah. linger to spend their leisure time, and then, you know, along the way, discover art. Mm, well, wonderful. Have you learned anything from your interactions with the Getty Museum that you've been influenced by? Well, the, the Getty. Yeah. The, Getty, the Getty is a city, isn't yeah. it? That's quite aspirational for us. But I think some of the elements of the Getty, albeit not on that scale, will be integral to Langston IMC. And of course, I'm talking about things like the Research Institute at the Getty, what is called the GRI. In fact, it's interesting that you mentioned that. We've been doing a lot of architectural research by actually going to these sites. And later this month, I'm going to be taking our donors to, among other things, see the Getty Research Institute so that they can see the possibilities of having special collections, having a library, having amazing residency spaces with bucolic views. You can see all the way to Catalina, um, having been a scholar in residence there, to demonstrate ways in which the setting can inspire um, new scholarship, more in-depth scholarship, and, and new ways of thinking. So that is certainly one aspiration. The other, again, mega facility that, that the Getty has is their conservation lab. It's, it's tremendous. Mm -hmm. But we, too, hope to have something on a much smaller scale, and we feel that that element is also important. And then, you know, of course, the, the amazing gardens especially the one that I'm thinking of that uh, artist Robert Irwin designed to have those types of outdoor spaces. So this kind of indoor outdoor transparency as part of a comprehensive whole is uh, something that is of course, very inspirational to institutions throughout the world, not just ours in terms of what the, the Getty has contributed to the field. Got you. Where are all the paintings stored and how are they stored? Yeah, that's a fascinating question. They're usually, and this is not just for Langston IMC, and oftentimes museums will store their assets, their collections in different locations. For example, when I was at the Guggenheim Museum, we must have had 14 or 15 different collection storage sites. Um, Manhattan is dense, as you know, and it is it poses particular challenge for collection storage and real estate. But nonetheless, we needed to spread out our collection among different vendors just in case, just in case something happened to that particular storage site. So you really want to disseminate your assets broadly and don't keep them all in one location. So it's something uh, catastrophic happened. That said, right now we have a very modest uh, amount of the Buck collection in Laguna Beach where our benefactor, Gerald Buck, actually had 
his private gallery. And much of that is still intact. There are about 300 works there that are in storage, but we are also, because of the way he refurbished it as kind of a gallery loft space, we're able to um, also showcase to very small groups. There's no, unfortunately, public access, but to be able to showcase highlights from the Buck Collection, as well as uh, our, our newest acquisitions, um, but also have a modest storage space there. And then there are other collection storage um, businesses, such as um, Gander and White. That's probably one of the most state-of-the-art uh, collection storage sites in LA County. Um, where the bulk of our holdings will be protected, preserved, and stored. Is environmentally controlled rooms part of that storage? Absolutely critical. Mm. And even when you get into things like photography and film, it requires cold storage. The temperature, the climate control is absolutely essential with all of this. You know, but having said that, let me segue about your your question about collection storage. Our ideal aspiration for our future institute and museum, again, is to have everything under one umbrella. That, of course, is going to be determined by budget and the footprint of our building that it will encompass. But the ideal is to have collection storage, to have conservation areas, in addition to galleries, performance spaces, as well as educational spaces, all in one location. I think for for many, I think logical as well as important financial reasons. Do you have a favorite piece of art? You know, there are so many. That's such a great question, but there are so many pieces and we only have maybe about 10 or 15 minutes left. So I think one one way that I I would love to answer that and that is really in reflection to the uh, the 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 founding collections of Langston IMCA is one of the threads that really goes through the Irvine Museum collection and California Impressionism all the way to modern and contemporary art that kind of highlights my favorites. And that is the concept of light. That so many of those artists in both of these collections were so inspired by, whether it be the moonlight nocturnes of California Impressionist Granville Redmond, or whether it be the more atmospheric light of contemporary artists who were exploring with translucency and materials like resin in their sculpture. Folks like Helen Paschen, Peter Alexander, Dwayne Valentine all come to mind in terms of uh, amazing work that is so California in its roots, but also just beautiful to look at, to contemplate, and to reflect upon. One of the things I often like to ask UCI leaders is oftentimes students look at at leaders and senior professors, and, and it looks so easy from the outside. In terms of, you know, an arch career is not an easy one, I understand, Can you share any adversity that you might have had during your career and and how you were able to see your way through it, whether it was just grinding your way through it or I don't know. Can you can you give any kind of example about that? Um, Certainly. I think one of those adversities was something that I kind of touched upon earlier, and that is 
as I said, my background training really is as an art museum education professional. And I've always focused on ways within my profession that art museums can and should serve as platforms for democratizing access and understanding uh, to art and culture. And oftentimes I felt that this is something that I, I still feel that art museums are and are still grappling with. And that is really prioritizing on an equal footing the importance of audience. Without an audience, without, um, I think, extending community care, a, a cultural institution is not relevant. And of course, it takes more than just audience engagement, but it also needs to be on par with collections, with acquisitions, with publications. Those latter three are often the top priority with audiences, community engagement, and community care falling a little bit lower on the hierarchy. And that was just one of the reasons why I moved from my profession as an art museum educator to wanting to become a museum director where I can call the shots and I can really note the priorities that I feel are so critical for the existence of something like Langston IMCA as well as really for, for, for the profession at large. Director Kanatani, until the building is built, I know that you have a space that you're showing pieces. Can you please tell us about that? Yeah, thank you for that, Kevin. As I mentioned earlier, we are a startup on most fronts, but because we have a 4,500 work collection, that means we can and are doing programming around those particular works. And we have a modest site about a couple miles from campus on Von Karman Avenue. Uh, it's a 2,600 square foot gallery, as well as education space where we're able to show rotating rosters, actually three exhibitions a year uh, that comprise work from both the Irvine Museum collection and our Buck collection pieces. Uh, we also have educational programs that we are offering in conjunction with those particular exhibitions. Uh, we've developed, for example, curriculum resources for K through 12 teachers. We have a very successful virtual tour and workshop program for those particular uh, audiences. And this was something that was really another silver lining from the pandemic when we weren't able to entertain visitors in person. But that particular K through 12 virtual tour and workshop program has become so successful. We, since the pandemic began, we've been able to reach over 4,000 students and teachers from 19 different school districts in Orange County and throughout the state. So that undoubtedly will become a hybrid program that we will maintain once we're able to more fully welcome back visitors in person and certainly for the future institute and museum. The other kinds of educational components we hope will involve also um, not only having that art education stop at the classroom door through these virtual tour and workshops, but also to start engaging the families of these kids. My philosophy in terms of uh, education and museums has always been that you start young if you want to develop a future audience, but that learning about well, um, art is a lifelong process that extends throughout adolescence all the way up through adulthood. And to the latter point, we do offer 
public programs in the form of lectures, symposium, dialogues with artists as part of our offerings as well. Thank you so much for spending the time with us today. It is really exciting. We're looking forward to the future of this incredible facility that's going to be built and, and everything that your organization is going to offer. So thank you so much. And Kevin, if I may, um, I'd like to add one more plug for, since you mentioned the interim space and our upcoming exhibition, that I would love to have uh, your listeners attend and um, engage with us in person. And that is an exhibition that opens on June 11th, and it will go through September 3rd. It's called Variations of Place, Southern California Impressionism in the Early 20th Century. And what your listeners will be able to experience are some of the finest works of California Impressionism, not only from our collection, but from some generous lenders in the region. The exhibition itself will comprise, oh, 30 plus paintings uh, that are representing more than 20 artists who settled in Laguna Beach, Los Angeles, San Diego, Santa Barbara, in and around that time of the late 19th to the early 20th century. They'll see stunning seascapes, landscapes, figurative works by really prominent artists within this genre of painting. So we welcome and hopefully we'll be able to see some of your audience on site with us. What is your website address? I think you can just, at this point, Google Langson Institute and Museum of California Art. And it will come up. And maybe UCI in there. Sure. Yes. Just to be sure. Yes, of course. Fantastic. Director Canatani, thank you so much for the exploration. Best of luck to this exciting time of growth for the Institute Museum. It is going to be wondrous to watch it be so fertile and grow and blossom into uh, what it turns out to be. We can't wait to see. Mm -hmm. Kevin, thank you so much for this opportunity. And to your listeners, who I hope will continue to join us on this journey uh, to our opening in the next few years, but also the fact that we have an interim space, don't hesitate to join us now and discover and get a taste of what Langston IMCA will be when we formally open our new building. Thank you again to UCI's Langston Institute and Museum of California Arts Director, Kim Canatani, for taking us through her arts career and showcasing the future of what's in store for IMCA. The more I think about it, it seems like a perfect location for the museum on the North Campus at Jamboree Road and Campus Drive, overlooking the beautiful wetlands toward the main campus. This is exciting news and another significant milestone as UCI continues to grow, mature, and earn its place at the table of the great universities of the world. Zot, zot, zot. Well, that's all we've got for today. You've been listening to UCI Conversations, where every week we explore another corner of the land of blue and gold. I'm your host, Kevin Bostenmeyer, wishing you a pleasant good evening. We'll see you next week, right here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Here's Fred Kaplan playing it out from the title song from his CD, Signifying.